Get your Bibles. Open them up to the book of Joshua. You got your phones. Go ahead and open them up. The book of Joshua, chapter 2. We're in the middle of this. It's been a fun, this has been a fun series. This has been a fun series that we've been in over the last few weeks. Just looking at the children of Israel and their journey out of Egypt, moving into the promised land. And it's kind of been an OCD person's nightmare. If you're a type A personality, this has kind of been a nightmare for you because we have done this completely out of order. Like nothing's happening in sequence in this series. Nothing is happening chronologically the way that it is supposed to happen. We're kind of bouncing back and forth all over this story, kind of in a, as a shotgun blast, pulling out key points and, and key principles that we can apply to our lives. That uh, I'm just telling you guys, if we put this stuff to work, it'll change us. So where we pick up the story today, Joshua and the crew are just on the other side of the Jordan River. They're fixing the crossover, and Joshua is sending out some spies into the promised land to check out the territory and to check out Jericho. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies out from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come over here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. This is getting serious. He said, bring out the men who came to you and entered into your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. There's a whole lot happening here in this little passage of Scripture. The first thing that jumps out to me is this, is that when Joshua sent out his spies, how many did he send out? Sent out two. Now, when Moses, the person who led the children of Israel before Joshua took over, sent out spies into the promised land, to kind of do the same thing to get a feel for what was going on, he sent out how many? Now, how many came back with a good report? Two. Do you think Joshua learned something? You think he learned something? He's like, you know what? If I send a whole bunch of people out here, this is probably going to come back somehow conflicted. Two worked with bringing back a good report last time, so I'm going to send out two this time. So I think he kind of handpicked two people he knew were going to bring back a good report, and he was kind of fixing the vote before it happened. So he sends these guys out. They begin to check out the promised land, and they enter into Jericho, and they, they, they end up at uh, kind of an inn hotel kind of setup that was built into the outer wall of Jericho which is where Rahab lived. Now, Rahab was like a jack-of-all-trades. Like she, she ran a, historians will say that she ran kind of like a hotel there, and it was like the hotel. If you came in from out of town, that was the place you were going to stay, and the locals knew that's where you went if you were a visitor. And it was probably because of her second profession in that she was a prostitute, so most of the people that were traveling wanted to go hang out with the hoe. <laughs> lonely traveler she's like i can make some bank on this and sure enough that's what she was doing and and she was also kind of a seamstress too so she did a lot of stuff making quilts and, and things like that so she was a lady who was just working it looked like just to try to pay the bill so she was doing everything that she could do well these spies come in and it's it's amazing that we <laughs> Not too long after they, they get into the inn and they're staying with Rahab while they're checking out stuff, the king hears that there's spies in the kingdom. You know what that tells me? That they're not good spies. 
Like they, they're not good at what they do. Like there's two, like a huge group of them. There's two of them trying to sneak in. And this king is sending word to Rahab. Hey, I've heard that there's some spies hanging out in our city and they're probably staying with you. So listen, if you see her here, you need to, you need to bring them up to me. These guys were not good spies. So I don't know if they just had a particular kind of look. You know, like you just people that just show up and you can look at them and you're like, you're not from around here. Maybe they kind of had that vibe, you know. Maybe they're walking across the country along the side road and here come some people that live around Jericho and they're riding their horses and they're going up in and they wave at them and then the Israelite spies go, hey, y'all, how you doing? And they're like, oh, you guys are definitely not from around here. Yeah, Maybe they just had too much southern twang. So maybe the king was like, we're looking specifically for two people who were saying, hey, y'all, and... Uh, <laughs> and go dogs yeah <laughs> we'll know we'll know exactly we'll know exactly who they are and if you hear them say hey watch this then then you know that's just always oh my goodness it just somebody says hey go dogs and that reminded me of a joke you know what they call <laughs> Yeah, we're just going to skip that. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. We're going to stay with it. Yeah, so they probably weren't the best spies in the world. Um, yeah, I got to quit throwing too many comments out. I mean, you get me chasing rabbit trails all over the place. But I like the interaction. Y'all keep it coming. Because there's nothing worse than a dead crowd when you're trying to preach the gospel. All right? So I'm going to bring you the truth. Y'all keep it going where you're at, okay? Can I hear you on the back row? That's what I'm talking about. So, so he, they get out there, and the king puts this big threat. And he goes, listen, if you see these guys, I want to know about it. Turn them over to me. Rahab has a choice to make. Because her back's up against the wall. If she doesn't turn these guys over to the king, the penalty is going to be death. Not just for her, but for her entire household. They're going to be put to death. Something happens, though, in the face of this threat that makes her choose to do something This is unbelievable to me. Being threatened with her life and the lives of her family, knowing fully well where those spies were, she chose to lie to the king's guard and say, I don't know where these guys are. I don't know. They were here for a little bit, but then they kind of went on down the road, and I saw them heading out towards the gate. Maybe if you go over there... And look, you'll catch them before they get away. And she hid the spies up on her roof under a pile of stuff just in case the soldiers were going to search her house. And what in the world would make a prostitute that made her money selling herself make such a powerful decision and want to hide and protect these spies. Well, we're not going over it today, but if you want to take the time to read this chapter and look at the exchange of dialogue that happens between her and the Israelite spies, it's amazing. Because one, she recognizes that the God that they serve is the one true God. Okay? And she sees and she has heard of everything that God has done for the Israelites from the moment they left Egypt 
the kingdoms that he's given them victory over, how they crossed the Red Sea, how they crossed over the Jordan on dry ground. She's, she's heard of all of this stuff and all the great exploits of God. And in her mind, she goes, wow, this God that you guys serve is the one true God. Rahab came to a realization that God was real. And in face of that knowledge, she chose to put everything at risk to protect those spies so that she could do her part to serve God because she didn't want to be on the she didn't want to be on the receiving end of God's wrath. You know what that tells me? Rahab was smart. She was smart. So she cuts a deal with these spies and she goes, "Listen, I know that God has given this city to you. I know that you guys are about to come in here and just clean house. Promise me this. I'm going to take care of you. I want to help you get out. But promise me this. Promise me that I will be protected. Promise me that I will be shown mercy. Promise me that not just me, but that my family and their families will be shown mercy and be protected. And they made a deal. They made a deal. So the spies go out. Rahab did what she had to do to cover the spies get away. They get back to Joshua. They give the report. Joshua and the Israelites come in, and we covered this story last week. They just come in. They give the shout. The walls of Jericho fall down, and Joshua remembers the promise that these guys have made to Rahab. And we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 6. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. That's amazing. That's amazing to me. That someone who is a prostitute. Like if I said the word Rahab, you guys that are churchy people are going to follow that up immediately with what? I'm going to say Rahab, the prostitute. Rahab, the prostitute. Someone who was labeled as a prostitute, who has behaved as a prostitute, who had that kind of lifestyle, made a decision that not only saved her life, but saved the lives of everyone in her household. She made a decision that began, it started a ripple effect through her household and through history, and things started changing because she made a quality decision that no matter who she had been up until that point, she was going to choose to do the right thing and put God first and serve Him in the way that she knew best to do it. And something power began to happen because we're not defined by our labels. We are defined by our actions. She chose. She chose to break rhythm with everything that had happened in her life up until that point and chose to do something different. And it changed everything. It changed everything. The whole city collapsed, and she and her family walked out unscratched and unharmed. How many of you have ever had somebody try to put a label on you? Oh, my goodness. If you've been alive more than five minutes. People love putting labels on us, don't they? They love putting labels. Because if I can put a label on you, then I can put you in some kind of box and some kind of parameter. 
And now you make sense to me. If I can put a label on you, then I can kind of control my outlook and my perception of you. If I can put a label on you, then things make sense. Let me tell you, God never intended for any of us to operate with a label on our lives. Not one of us to operate with a label on our lives. We are defined by what we choose to do, not by who people say we are. So no matter what you've experienced in your past, no matter where you come from, no matter what history says you're supposed to be, or people have labeled you to be, I'm here to tell you that God is a God who can make all things new. And he can set in front of you a new course, a new path, and you can choose today. You can choose today. To set a new course by your actions and by your decisions. Amen? Amen? Oh my goodness, you so can. You so can. Oh, my beautiful wife. Can you come help me for a moment? You look good, by the way. She wasn't expecting this, so I caught you off guard. This is what people will do, though. People will try to put labels on you and try to limit you. And before long, you'll find yourself. Can you have a seat there? I to excuse me if I get distracted. You'll find yourself <clears throat> boxed in. So you put a wall here. Okay. <laughs> I'm doing a mime impression for some reason. I don't know why. Doing a mime. And I know it. A wall here. A wall here. There's a wall here. Lid on top. Floor on the bottom. You're inside a box. There's no way you can get out of this box. The walls are unbreakable. It doesn't matter how hard you hit them. You're not going to be able to get out. You're never going to be able to get out of the top. You're never going to be able to stomp your feet hard enough to break through and get out through the bottom. There's no doors. There's no windows. There's no way to get out. There's no way for you to get out of the box. Now get out of the box. Exactly. She's the first person I've ever seen do this. Right? She said she couldn't, but she did. If you're not careful, you'll spend your whole life sitting inside of a box that somebody else is telling you it's impossible to get out of. You'll spend your whole life trapped behind walls of limitation. Well, you can go ahead and have a seat. Oh, well, you're, you're always going to be angry. You're never going to get control of your temper. You've always been a pervert. There's no way you're going to get control of your lust. You've always had low self-esteem, and they'll try to put this box around you. And, and the enemy will tell you there's no way to get out of the box. There's no way you can break through the walls. There's no way you can experience the freedom that the Word of God says that you can have. And we'll build this box around our lives that in reality only exists in our minds. Because there is no box. There is no box. There is no box. So as we step out of this box and we begin to realize that, hey, there's no box. Why don't you come on up here again? I just want to use you again because you're so cute. So Kelly has stepped out of the box. She's realized that the box doesn't really exist. As she steps out, she has to look everybody that's in here in the eyes. <laughs> right? Everybody's perception, everybody's idea of who she is, who she's supposed to be, 
And if we're not careful as a body of Christ, we'll find ourselves putting someone like her in the box while they're trying to step out of the box. You hear me? Let's be careful as a body of Christ to always encourage, to always lift up, to always point people the right direction, to always speak the truth in love. I'm telling you, because what we'll do is, oh, Kelly, she's always been that way. She's always been, no matter what she does in her life. If she, Y'all know how church works sometimes, especially in the South, especially in the Bible Belt. You make one mistake, and 15 years later, you're still hearing about it. No matter who you're trying to become or what God's doing through your life or what he's done through you, the devil's got, he always finds that one person. Well, yeah, but I remember she used to be like this. I remember she used to be like that. Can I just give you some advice? If somebody does that and you're trying to step out of the box, why don't you just do what the ancient proverb says to do? Just apply it to your life. Because players are going to play Play, 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 play. And haters are going to hate, 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 hate. Y'all shouldn't be laughing at that. Y'all shouldn't know songs like that in church. So we're just going to do what? Shake it off. Shake it off. Don't let that junk stick to you. Don't let that stuff stick to you. Don't let somebody put a label on you and try to box in what God wants to do in your life because you can be what the Word of God says you can be. And you can have every promise that the Word of God says that you can have. You can walk in the power that the Bible says you can walk in and the enemy's got to turn around and run. Don't let him mess with your mind. And don't let people try to shut down what God wants to do in your life. Shake it off and keep moving. Keep moving. Keep moving. Rahab shook it off. Rahab broke pattern. Rahab made a decision to become something different. And ripples started happening. Her family was saved. She was saved. You know what happened? She eventually, historians say, she ended up marrying one of the two spies that came over. She married one of the two spies. He was promoted to being a leader in the territory, one of the kings over the area. So she literally went from being a prostitute to being royalty because of a decision that she made, a quality decision to take some action with her life. It's amazing. She started this ripple effect. James chapter 2 It's funny, she goes from from being a prostitute to being equated with somebody who took a huge step of faith. So later on in Scripture, when when James is talking about faith, he uses Rahab as an example. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? And then James just drops a bomb and says, As a body without the spirit is dead. So faith without deeds is dead. My goodness. He says, don't tell me about how awesome you are and how great your faith is if you can't back it up. And then he uses a story of a prostitute to say, listen, a prostitute made a decision and put action with her faith. Why can't you do the same thing? The story keeps going, though, in in Hebrews uh, chapter 11. Here's Rahab popping up again, forever inscribed in Scripture. And what's considered the hall of faith where 
where the writer puts down people like Noah and commends him for his faith and Abraham and commends him for his faith. And, and we think about great people of faith like Moses who led the people of Israel out. And here we find the prostitute Rahab again by faith. The prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. From a prostitute to royalty to being written about in Scripture, a quality decision changed the course of her entire life. And you know what? It affected your life too. It affected your life too. Matthew chapter 1. People read over this stuff real fast. Big genealogies that are listed out where it talks about he who beget whom, who beget whom, who beget whom, that that led up to us having Jesus, the big great genealogy of Jesus where you see awesome people like David listed. Here you see Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, out of the Old Testament. Who is Boaz famous for... uh, being married to Ruth, right there. Rahab the prostitute was listed in the genealogy of Jesus, just a generation or so or two ahead of David. You got Rahab, you got Boaz, then you've got Jesse, who was David's father, and on down the lineage goes. Because of her choice and her decision, Rahab is listed and the genealogy of our Lord and Savior. Is that awesome or what? I think that's on purpose too. I think that's on purpose too. Because Jesus just didn't come through the line of perfect people. He came through the line of a prostitute who made a decision to change her life. Don't you ever doubt what God can birth through you through the power of a quality decision. This ripple effect began not only through her family, not only through Scripture, it affects us today. And I got to wonder, in thinking how much impact the things that we choose to do today has on the people around us and their lives, and not just their lives, but the lives of their family, because what we do can have more impact than we think. What we do can have more impact than we think, guys. How many of you have heard of somebody named Norman Borlaug? Anybody heard of Norman Borlaug? Almost nobody has ever heard of this guy. Nobody's ever heard of him. Andy Andrews, who is, uh, I mean, he's just a great author, a great speaker. He's a great guy who loves the Lord, did a study. And he was looking at the power of the ripple effects that go from one person's life to another person and how we all affect each other by what we say or what we do or what we don't say, what we don't do. And one of the, the case studies he looked at was a life of a person named Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug won a Nobel Prize. He won a Nobel Prize for figuring out how to hybridize corn and wheat to grow in arid climates. So he figured out a way, literally, for corn and wheat to grow in a desert where there's almost no water. Norman Borlaug, because of his study and what he did, is credited to date with saving over 2 billion lives because of his research. Over 2 billion people that would have starved to death. 
this guy's work and this guy's research made an impact and a change in their lives and a ripple effect that went on. Long after he died, he died in the mid to late 90s, I think, but his work is still living on. Two billion people and counting this guy saved. That's amazing. That's a powerful impact. That's a powerful impact to have on somebody. Over two billion people. But you know, Norman Borlaug wouldn't have been able to do what Norman Borlaug did in his research and his study if it wasn't for a guy named Henry Wallace. How many of you know who Henry Wallace is? Almost nobody. He was a, a vi- one of the vice presidents that served under uh, Roosevelt way back when. Uh, I think he served before Truman. But anyway, he was, he was a vice president. And this guy had a vision because he was a former director or a former secretary of agriculture. He had a vision for what plants could do and impact, how they could impact the world and society. So he said, you know what? I want to set up a facility in Mexico where we can begin to research a way to get corn and wheat to grow in areas where there's always famine, where people are always starving to death in these arid climates where nothing can grow. Maybe we can figure out a way to make that happen. He had the, the vision. He had the big picture. He used the power of his office to set up a study, and he hired a guy named Norman Borlaug to do the research and to make it happen. So Norman Borlaug's research is what broke through. Norman Borlaug is the one that got the Nobel Prize. Norman Borlaug's the guy that's credited with saving over 2 billion people. But it was really the vision that came from Henry Wallace and him using the power of his office to make it all happen. So it went from Wallace to Borlaug to over 2 billion people saved. That's a cool story, huh? It goes a little bit further. Because I don't think it was really Henry Wallace who should get the credit. Because there was a student at a university named George Washington Carver. Now, everybody knows George Washington Carver. He's famous. The guy figured out how to do over 266 things with a peanut that, that benefits the world that we live in today. How do you come up with over 266 things you can make from a peanut? You know what I mean? That, that's, that's, he, he figured it out. Over 84 things he figured out how to make from a sweet potato. Are you kidding me? Guy's a genius. George Washington Carver was tasked with watching the kid of his professor a couple of days a week conveniently when a professor needed a babysitter. So he turned to his top student to babysit his son. So George Washington Carver would take this six-year-old boy, and he would take him on botanical adventures, and he would teach him about plants, and he would show him the possibility involved with plants and how plants could change the world if you just put enough time and enough research into it. There was something there that could impact society. And while he was doing things with peanuts and while he was doing things with sweet potatoes, George Washington Carver spoke into the life of a young six-year-old Henry Wallace and gave him a passion for plants and agriculture 
that he would take with him for the rest of his life. He put that vision in the heart of Henry Wallace that he cast to a man named Norman Borlaug that resulted in over 2 billion people being saved. Don't ever, don't ever underestimate the impact you can have because what we do can have more impact than we think. So I'm thinking we should give credit to George Washington Carver for over 2 billion lives being saved. Unless you want to go back a little bit further. To a a small town named Diamond, Missouri, where there was a farmer named Moses and a wife named Susan. And they lived there on their farm. They didn't have much. They had the hands that helped and, and all that to make everything happen. They lived in a slave state, and they didn't believe in slavery, okay, which back then put a big target on you, especially with these, these lunatics and idiots that would drive around and these little posses and, and attack you and, and, and stir stuff up um, if you didn't fall in line with the rest of the, rest of the people these racist, prejudiced groups, you know, disgusting kind of people. And one group was called Quantrose Raiders. So Quantrose Raiders, because Moses and Susan, they didn't want to roll with slavery. They didn't, they didn't agree with it. They came running in one night. They had on their hoods. They had their torches. And they shot up the farm. They killed animals. They killed livestock. They killed a lot of the, the helpers that they had there. And they grabbed one woman who was best friends with the farmer's wife, Susan. He grabbed her, and she wouldn't let go of her infant son. So they took her and her infant son, and they took off, decimated the farm, and took off. Susan, the farmer's wife, when she realized that the woman had been taken and that her son had been taken with her, started freaking out because that's her best friend. It's her best friend. So women have a way of persuading their husbands. Amen. So she talked to her husband and said, look, we got to do something. We've got to set up a meeting. We got to figure out how to get them back. That's my friend. I can't sit here and let something happen to her. We've got to do what we can do to get out there and, and, and try to save them. So she and Moses, they send out the word. They send out, you know, they, they tell their friends. And, and somehow or another, after a couple of days, they're able to set up a meeting with Quantros Raiders. They're able to set up a negotiation for the life of the woman and the child. So Moses takes off, and one of the turns was he's got to show up by himself, so he goes riding off by himself into the night. He gets at the crossroad where they're supposed to meet, and there's four Quantros Raiders there with the torches, with the flower sacks on their head, with the eye holes cut out, looking scary as can be. And he gives them the money that they want. And then they demand one more thing from him. They want the horse that he rode out there with. That's the last horse that this guy had. They killed most of his livestock and shot, most, and shot the rest of his horses. He had one horse to his name. So this guy got off his horse and traded his last horse for what these guys threw at him in a burlap sack. And just hit him in the chest. And when that happened, Moses realized that the boy's mother had already been killed. He opened up the sack, 
And as he took the baby out, the Quantros riders just took off down the trail with his horse. They're gone. And he's there in the middle of the night with a half-dead infant child, shaking in the cold, malnourished and starving. And he takes that child and he stuffs him down under his jacket, up under his shirt, against his skin to keep him warm. And he begins to walk out. It was about a two-hour horse ride, so he walked literally all night with his child to get back to his house, just talking over him, speaking over him. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to make it. I'm going to take care of you. We're going to get you well. He gets back to his house. The wife grabs the baby. They put the baby down in front of the fireplace, and they begin to rub the child, try to get the child to respond, try to get the child warm. And after a little while, some color starts to come back. They're able to get a little bit of food into the child. And he begins to recover. And they made a promise to that kid. They promised him, we're, we're going to take care of you. We're going to raise you. Your mother's dead, but we're going to raise you. And in honor of her, we're going to provide for your education. We're going to see that you get training and that you get schooling. And that's when Moses and Susan Carver gave their name to a young baby, George Washington. And that's how George Washington Carver got his name. Saved by a farmer and his wife who paid an impossible price for a little baby. So maybe, maybe at some hick farmers from Diamond, Missouri that are responsible for over 2 billion people and counting whose lives are saved. Because what you do, what you do has more effect and it has more impact than you think it does. Don't ever undersell what God can do through you. Because you can't look into the future and see how it plays out. All Ruth was doing was figuring out a way to honor God and save her family. She had no idea she would be mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. She had no idea that she would have some small part to play in all of our salvation. Think about that. How powerful is that? Somebody out there is counting on you to make a ripple. Are you hearing me? Somebody out there is counting on you to make a ripple. Ushers, if you will, why don't you go ahead and grab the baskets and let's begin to pass out the rocks to everyone like I asked. Ushers, if you will, I have a stone that I want to give everyone today. I don't see the ushers. Yeah, those baskets there. Thank you, gentlemen. Somebody's counting on you to make a ripple with your life. Is everything that you do matters. Everything that you do impacts somebody. Everything that you do or don't do impacts someone. As the gentlemen are passing these rocks out to you, had to make a promise to me. Number one, that we're not going to hit each other in the head with these things today. 
because I know some of you guys and y'all are pranksters, so let's don't be throwing rocks. Let's don't be throwing rocks. Once you get your rock, I want you to look on it. There's a little verse written on it. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. In that passage of Scripture, Isaiah is having an encounter in the presence of God. And God literally asked this question. He asked, Who can I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah responded with one of the most powerful phrases ever packed in a sentence in all of Scripture. He says, here I am, Lord. Send me. Send me. I want everybody to look at this little rock. I want you to think about your life. And I want you to think about the potential that sits inside of you. And everything that God could do in you and everything that God could do through you. Because we all have a figurative rock that we get to drop in this pond of life. And we all get our chance to make the ripples. We all get our chance to make the impact. We all get our chance to make the difference. Even if it's something small, you never know how something small can turn into something big. The God I serve can take a few fish and a few loaves of bread and feed a multitude. You might not feel like you got a lot to give, but God can take a little and he can do a lot through it. Amen? The God I serve looks at you and says, what's in your hand? And if you've got a staff and that's it, he can take that staff and he can use it to work miracles, to split the Red Sea, to get water to come from a rock, and use it as an instrument of power to help you deliver an entire nation. We serve a God that can do a lot with a little. Somebody's counting on you to make a ripple. Every one of us are here today because somebody made a ripple that crossed over into your life. Whether somebody showed you the love of God or somebody told you about Jesus or somebody invited you to church, we're all here because somebody made an impact, big or small, in our lives. And it matters. It matters. Your life matters. Your calling matters. What you do matters. Why are you hammering this, Josh? Here's why. Because most people live their lives thinking somebody else is going to do it. 
Somebody else is going to give. Somebody else is going to volunteer. Somebody else is going to make the difference. Somebody else will invite somebody to church. Somebody else will tell somebody about Jesus. Somebody else will pray for somebody that's sick. And I'm here to tell you that you are the one that God is calling to make a difference in your world. Not somebody else. You. You are the one who's going to make that impact. And make that change. And make that difference. We spend so much time waiting for somebody else to do things. And we spend so much time praying and seeking God to move. God move. God please do this. God please send your power. And and Lord we just pray for a move of you. A move of God. A move of God. A move of God. A move of God. And I'm here to tell you something guys. We are not waiting on a move of God. We are a move of God. Y'all didn't hear me. We're not waiting on a move of God. We are a move of God. We are a move of God. We do have the power of His Spirit inside of us. We do walk with the gift of healing. We do walk in every power and every authority that the Word of God says that we have. We do have access to every promise that the Bible says that we have. We are a move of God. Everywhere we go, we make ripples. Everywhere we go, we make waves. Everywhere we go, we have an opportunity to say, God, here I am, use me. Whether it's in something big or something small, I want to do my part to make my wave. We are a move of God. Most people have problems seeing themselves this way, though, because we get caught up in the labels that are put on us by others and by life. And the limitations that are put on what we should do and what we shouldn't do by religion or what somebody has spoken. I'm just telling you guys, you just don't understand what God wants to do through you. And what God wants to do in you and through you has absolutely, listen, it has very little to do with what happens here. The majority of what God wants to do through your life happens when you walk out those doors. So we got a choice this morning. Do we want to make an impact? Do we want to make a ripple? Do we want to drop our rock in the pond of life and say, here I am, Lord, use me? Or do we want to sit in a box that's created by labels and limitations by other people? And by ourselves. That really doesn't exist at all. We just let it sit up here. And hold us back. Day after day. Bow your heads and close your eyes. Heads bowed and eyes closed. No one looking around. No one moving. I want to ask a couple of questions. And the first one is this this morning. Honestly, 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 looking at yourself. And that deep part where nobody else knows the truth but you. One hundred percent honest today. Are you allowing a label? to sit on you and box you in and hold you back 
from everything that God wants to do in your life. Labels look different. Labels are how other people perceive you. Labels are what your dad said. Labels are struggles that you've dealt with, things that you've come out of. But at the end of the day, a label is always going to be your perception of yourself. So as I talk today and I talk about the impact that your life can have and and the purpose that God has for you, is the first thing that you think of is, yes, I can have that, or do you automatically look at your limitations and your labels, your struggles, and think, nah, that's for somebody else. If you're here today, completely honest, you would say, Josh, I've let others put labels on me. I've let life put labels on me. Ultimately, I put labels on myself. But I want to make a decision today to begin to step out of that and become the person that God says that I can be. If that's you, when I count to three, I want you to lift your eyes up and look at me. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you do in this church. What matters is that you're honest and that you're real because today can be a beautiful day where you start to make a ripple with your life that carries out and impacts more people than you could possibly know in ways that you could never imagine. If you hear and you say, you know what, I want that for my life, but I have, I have got these labels sitting on me and I'm ready to step out of it. When I count to three, I want you to lift your eyes up and look at me. One, two, three, lift them up. 